Well, in our culture, the greatest athletic achievement is the Olympic gold medal. To get gold in the Olympics signifies you're literally the best of the best. Earning gold also comes with glory, as your name is immortalized in the record books. What makes getting gold even sweeter is that it feels like a payout, a payoff of all the hard work. They don't just give them out for free, you know. You've got to earn gold through years of blood, sweat, tears. It's for this reason that you never hear a gold medalist say, you know, I don't think it was worth it. Have you ever seen the guys holding gold up on the podium say, you know, I regret everything. This was not worth it. You never hear that. To the contrary, they always say it was worth it. Getting gold is what makes everything worth it. Now, you might get a different response if you ask that same question to the person before they get the gold. If you go back 10 years and ask them, is all this training and sacrifice worth it? You might get a doubtful answer. Some people lose confidence that all of their sacrifice and suffering are actually worth it, that it will pay out in the end. They start to doubt if they'll ever get gold. And some, therefore, just drop out and abandon the pursuit altogether. But you know what? Perspective is a powerful force. We cannot see into the future, but many of our trials would be put into perspective if we could. It would change everything if we just knew how things were going to turn out. Just imagine, for example, if an athlete was given a peek into the future. It's, a real, it's the real deal. It's really going to happen. This is legitimate. But they're shown that 12 years from now, they will win the goal. They have a long road ahead of them, though. They're, they're not going to just get it easy. After four years, the first Olympics, they won't even qualify. Four years after that, the second Olympics, they'll be terribly injured and have to drop out. But four years after that, in that third Olympics, Olympics, they will finally get the gold. In all, it's going to take them 12 years of intense training and suffering. But if they go down this road, they're assured they will get the gold in the end. Now, given this knowledge, don't you think that would change some things? It can't change their circumstances. They must still face this 12-year road of suffering. But being assured of the outcome, you think that would change how they would handle the 12 years of intense suffering. They would accept it, embrace it, even appreciate it to a degree, knowing that all these years they are leading up to and producing for them gold. It's getting them closer. And they're certainly not going to give up or quit because they know, they've seen, they've been assured that if they just persist down this road and push through all the pain and the training, it's going to end in a gold medal. They've seen it. You see, such a future perspective would change everything. If only that were true in life, that would, that would change everything. Well, you know, when it comes to the Christian life, in many ways, it's like an athletic contest. The difference is we've already been given that future perspective, even an eternal perspective. We've already been shown the outcome. That's true. We haven't seen our specific names written down in the book of life, but God has made some key promises regarding the future if you just take him at his word. We're promised by God in scripture that he who believes in Christ Jesus has eternal life. You have it. If you turn to Christ in faith, you'll be saved from from the wrath to come and made partakers of heaven. 
that the glories of heaven become your home. And if you cling to Christ and persevere in the faith, you will get the gold, so to speak. This is just a snippet of the eternal perspective Scripture gives us. And so don't you think those truths should change things here on earth? This doesn't mean your trials will go away now. You're still going to have to face your road, your path, and whatever that involves. But it should mean you will handle them differently, knowing the outcome is assured. Maybe for you, it's 12 years of poverty. It's just, that's going to be in your path. You lose your job, the economy goes south, you got a bunch of debt, you can't make ends meet. Long story short, you're going to have 12 years of living at the bottom of the barrel. And that's normally the type of trial that would cause someone to grow bitter, curse God, and just fall away from the faith. But if you can just remember that eternal perspective, that gold is guaranteed for those who persevere in the faith, it should change things. Instead of complaining, you would even find ways to give thanks. Instead of doubting, you would trust God even more and pray. And instead of falling away, you're going to hang on to Christ and you're going to endure because all that really matters is crossing the finish line. That's all that really matters. Just get there. You see, these are the type of people who stand up under trial, who have this supernatural peace and joy because they're setting their mind on things above. It doesn't come from a worldly perspective. It comes from a heavenly, an eternal perspective. And the thing is, you don't need a 30-minute trip to heaven to gain such a perspective. God's already given it to you in his word. If you would just take him at his word, he's shown you the outcome of the narrow path that goes through the narrow gate of Christ. He's shown you where it leads, guaranteed by his grace to glory for those who believe. So believe, and as you do, you'll be transformed and you will be blessed. Even in trials, you'll be blessed. This is an important truth we're going to glean today from James chapter 1. So why don't you open your Bibles now and join me in James chapter 1. And today we've got a bit of a shorter sermon planned for communion at the end. We're just going to look at one verse, but it's an important verse, a hinge verse. James chapter 1 verse 12. The next verse as we go through James verse by verse. This verse really summarizes what came before. It drives the point home. And it also sets us up for what's to come. If you've been with us, though, you've known that James begins, he's right off to the races. He jumps right into the deep end. The first subject he brings up is trials, the need to endure our trials. And you wait, the way you do that, he says, is by considering them all joy, back in verse 2. That sounds crazy, but it's not when you come to see your trials from God's perspective an eternal perspective where God is testing your faith and proving your faith through the refining fire. He has a good purpose. He's making you fit for eternity in all the fires of life. That can be hard to accept. Wisdom is needed to see things God's way. And that is found in verses five through eight, this divine wisdom we gain through prayer. When you gain this wisdom, though, you can embrace your trials with joy. It's a joy that's not found in the trial itself. That's not fun, but it's found in what God is doing through the trial, through the hard times. 
James then goes on to give an example using the trial of poverty in verses 9 through 11. Even the lowly brother, the person who has nothing, can still boast in what? He says in verse 9, in his high position. There's that heavenly perspective again, that eternal perspective. That transforms how we live life and how we suffer. This is the person who will endure, the one who sets his mind on things above. Now in verse 12, James returns to his main point in this first section of enduring trials, but he drives it home by making clear how the Christian who endures trials is not just joyful, but he or she is also blessed. Even in trials, still blessed. How can that be? Look at verse 12. Our one verse for this morning, he says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. As James wraps up his thoughts about enduring trials, he now pronounces a blessing on those who persevere. This is like a beatitude, a divine verdict, showing what what true blessing is all about. This is the nature of true blessing in God's eyes. Blessed is a familiar word in the Bible. Some translate it and think of it as happy. But the blessed man is more than just a happy man. It's not just happiness, because oftentimes he may not be happy. The emotion of happiness comes and goes, rises and falls with the tide, with with our changing circumstances. But the blessed man or woman, in whatever circumstances, and whatever emotions, they still have divine favor on their life. And that's meant to produce this supernatural contentment and peace and deep satisfaction, no matter what they're going through, even if it's not so happy. That's blessed in God's eyes. You often hear about people, or hear people talking about being blessed today. Like, hey, you got a new home, you're so blessed you got a raise at work. You're so blessed. Or we might speak of someone as being blessed with good looks or blessed with athletic ability. And don't get me wrong. These are blessings in a manner of speaking. But scripture challenges your value system and the definition of blessing. What if you lost your job, but it's making you turn to the Lord more in prayer? Would you still be blessed? Well, it depends on your perspective. If all you ever see is is right here, down below, what's right in front of you, your your present circumstances, that's all you're focusing on, well, then the state of your soul is going to be all over the map. But if you set your mind on an eternal perspective and your position in Christ, you'll know this deep and lasting and unassailable soul satisfaction You see God's purpose in all your trials, and although you're not happy you lost your job, but you understand eternally, you're still blessed. You haven't lost anything in Christ. You have all things in Him. You're you're still blessed. I know it sounds backwards, but the way of the Lord is not like the way of the world. And so far, James has been turning worldly wisdom on its head. He's told us that trials are actually a source of joy, And he's told us that poverty can even be an occasion for boasting. 
And now he's going to transform the definition of blessing itself. It's just a short verse, but from it, let's find from James the nature of true blessing. Simple enough, the nature of true blessing. Beginning with number one, the condition of blessing. The real condition of blessing. Who is the blessed man or woman? He says in verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Here we see James transform the condition of blessing, the requirements of blessing. Normally, people associate blessing with avoiding trials, escaping trials. When our daughter Olivia was four, we had her in a little preschool. One day, they called my wife frantically, and they said that Olivia had fallen in the jungle gym. It had rained the night before. They didn't dry it off. It was wet. It was slippery. She fell. They said she fell hard on her neck and was crying in a lot of pain and said, we'd better rush over. That's not the type of call you want to get from your preschool. And so what's going through your mind as a parent? What just happened? Did she break her neck? Is she paralyzed? Angel sped over and on the way, or rather the way they explained this incident on the phone, we're kind of expecting the worst. But when we got there, Angel took Olivia to the uh, urgent care, and it turns out she was fine. There was no injury. It just looked bad, but kids I bend easy, I guess. But those are the moments where you feel you just dodged a bullet, Right? And you avoided a trial. She could have been paralyzed. That would have begun a real lifelong trial, right? So you could say we were blessed and that the Lord spared her from anything worse. And that is true. That, that is a blessing. And the world understands that type of blessing. But that's all they understand. That's it. Blessed is a man who escapes trial. But the world simply cannot comprehend any form of blessing when the trial hits. At that point, you're not blessed, you're cursed. That's all they can say. Think of Job's friends. They hear that their good buddy Job, he just lost his health, all of his wealth, his 10 children. And when they show up and they see him, they only see one thing, cursed. You're cursed. You're not blessed in any way. You're just cursed. That's the only explanation they can give. But James teaches, as Job learned the hard way, that even in trials, there's still a place of blessing. Now, we're not saying that loss is a good thing or getting paralyzed is a good thing. It's not not what we're saying. But the point is, there's still a place of blessing, even in the midst of serious trials. The one who's suffering, recognizing what God is doing in the trials can find that place of blessing, that God has good purposes in the refining fire. In fact, for those who are God's children, these fiery trials, they're not the sign of God's displeasure or cursing. For his children, these trials are the sign of his fatherly love and discipline and care and concern. For through the trial, God is molding and shaping us into Christ's image. And that's a blessed thing right? You you believe that as a Christian, right? To be molded into Christ's image is a blessed thing that will challenge you. But listen to Hebrews 12, 7 and 11. It says, it is for discipline that you endure. 
God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline by trial, it does not feel joyful. It feels sorrowful because it usually represents some loss in our life. We're losing something. But when you're trained to see things God's way, it can lead to joy. It can bring joy. You can at least count it joy. You might be in there in the fiery furnace, but know that Christ is there with you. The angel of the Lord, he's walking with you, guiding you, strengthening you, preserving you, making sure you're not consumed by the fire. And as you emerge on the other side in one piece, you've come to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And you realize that's what God is doing in all this, right? God is like a farmer trying to cultivate fruit in his field. And there's some fruit like citrus that only get ready with some heat. They need some heat to ripen. And God wants to see fruit in his children, and he will happily wield trials and discipline to bring that about, to make us holy. Hebrews verse 10 says of that same chapter, of chapter 12, for they disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time as seems as seemed best to them, But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. That we may share in his holiness. You know, some people, some Christians even, get this totally backwards. They begin with this fundamental assumption that God wants them to be happy. That's the most important thing. Above all else, he just wants them to be happy. But see, the problem is when the trial strikes, they don't feel very happy. And these are the people who start to wrestle with God and doubt God. And they have a real trouble, a real problem, wondering why would God allow this? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Furthermore, these people have no interest in trying to endure the trial. Their only concern is to escape the trial as fast as possible, and get back to their state of happiness. That's their only concern. And some will even justify some serious sin in order to get out from under the trial, thinking, well, this is okay because God wants me to be happy. As an example, think of the trial of of a loveless marriage. Over the years, a couple's relationship has grown cold. It's like they're just roommates. They're not happy anymore. But one of the spouses believes God wants him to be happy. So instead of trying to endure the trial and grow in Christ and repent and and strive to be a godly spouse, well, maybe the husband's found another girl who makes him happy. And so he leaves his spouse for her because, you know, she makes him happy and he deserves to be happy. God wants him to be happy, right? So this must be a good thing. And do you know how often... Christian counselors hear this type of justification for the whole spectrum of sins out there. But such a person has it wrong because God is not trying to cultivate your happiness in life. He's trying to cultivate 
your holiness. Now, don't get me wrong. God is concerned with your joy. He wants his children to, to be joyful, to have joy. It's just that God knows that the passing pleasures of the world offer fleeting happiness at the expense of unrighteousness and your soul. Instead, God wants to see his children have a true joy. It's a joy that's only found with him, in him. It's a joy that comes only with holiness, never apart from holiness. And that holiness is cultivated by persevering your trials, not by escaping or trying to avoid trials. You can't control that, but it's the one who perseveres is blessed. The one who takes the escape route of sin and turns away from the Lord will be greeted by the world's pleasures, but that satisfaction will last just about as long as the steam rising from your coffee. And if you want proof, look no further than our society. We are the the most entertained, most drugged, most affluent, most materialistic society ever, yet also the most depressed society ever. Which just goes to show that the world's response to trouble, and everyone has trouble, the world's response, it's only going to leave you more empty and cut off from the Lord, which means cut off from the only true joy. Does that sound like true blessing to you? No, but James says, blessing comes by enduring trials God's way. It comes by drawing closer to the Lord when hard times come, so as to endure. In fact, speaking of Job, James himself will point to Job at the end of his letter as he circles back and makes this point once more. If you want to flip to just James 5 and look at James 5 verse 10. He starts and finishes with this subject of enduring trials. And he says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He says again the same thing, different words. We count those blessed who endured. Why? Because only those who endure see the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That He's not out to get us, He's out to perfect us, to make us like Christ, to be fit for heaven. Job experienced the Lord's dealings in life where God greatly tested him. But he endured. He did not curse God and fall away. He, he clung to God as hard as it was. And having passed the test, God then restored his blessings in life, but much more importantly, in the life to come. But those, <clears throat> those who fall away and, gain, and go their own way, they may gain the world's enjoyments, but in losing Christ, they will find out eternally they, they made the wrong choice. They've traded away their inheritance for a bowl of soup. That's what it's like. You're only blessed, though, if you persevere. Because then and only then will you find the the payout, gold at the finish line. 
In fact, this brings us to number two, the expression of blessing as we look at, in a simple way, the nature of true blessing. Number two, the expression of blessing. Look back at James 1 verse 12. He says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. The next phrase in verse 12 introduces the reason for the blessedness prescribed. Why is the man or woman who perseveres under trial blessed? Why? Because they will receive the crown of life. Here James evokes a very familiar image or symbol for eternal life in Scripture. I don't know about you, but whenever I think of a crown, I I just can't help but think of that gem-studded golden crown from the kids' animated movie Robin Hood that I watched a bunch growing up. So it just stuck in my mind. I think of that golden gem-studded crown. That is not the crown being spoken of here. This word Stephanos, crown, it's not used of the royal crown. This word is used of, of the laurel wreath that was given to victors in the games, usually woven of olive branches. It was a symbol of victory, honor, and glory. Just think back to the, the first Olympic Games, the, the real ones in Greece. This was their version of the gold medal. It was the crown. And so in Scripture, you have Peter and Paul and James. They all pick up on the crown as a fitting symbol for the reward of eternal life. Our heavenly prize for finishing the race of faith, it's not a literal crown. It is eternal life. And so James speaks of the crown of life as our reward, or, or really the, the, the crown which is life. Life is the reward, the prize. Eternal life is our hope. And Christ himself defined this eternal life as not merely a quantity of life, but also a quality of life. It's life lived everlasting in perfect communion with the triune God. Like he said in John seventeen three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We long for this eternal life with Christ, and it will be Christ who gives it to us on that day, the day of the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 4, it says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Keep in mind, though, this reward is only for those who persevere under trial. And as he says again in verse 12 in the middle, only for those who gain approval. You see that? You only get the crown of life once you've been approved. This word for approved, it's almost the same word as the word for tested back in verse 3. Look back at verse 2 and 3. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There we learn that these, the various trials of life, they're actually tests of your faith. But the purpose of these tests is not to destroy you, but to strengthen that faith and then to prove it, to show you're the real deal. You are a genuine believer. You just went through all these trials, but yet you've clung to Christ. You're approved. Have you ever seen how they test motorcycle helmets? That's a product you would want tested. First, they strap the helmet to a dummy and they just repeatedly drop it on an anvil to measure the impact G's. 
Then comes the shell penetration test where they have a sharply pointed three kilogram striker, maybe like a spike, and they drop it on the helmet a bunch of times to make sure it doesn't impale. Then there's the face shield penetration test where they literally just shoot it with an air rifle to make sure the, the face shield holds up. And then lastly, there's the flame resistance test. It's only for racing helmets, but they just blow the thing with a propane torch and the interior lining must not go above 70 degrees centigrade. Now that sounds like a fun job, but for the helmet, not so fun. (laughs) These are painful tests, but they're necessary tests to make sure the helmet will do its job, will save lives. And only after a helmet model has been approved, it has passed all of the various tests, is it finally ready for the marketplace. Well, in a manner of speaking, if you are to be in God's presence, you've got to be approved. You must be approved to be there. And this means you, by his design, must pass various tests, trials, the trials of life. Often painful, but it's only the person who endures all of the tests of life will be approved and will receive the crown of life. And you have to understand this is not a passive process for us. Active faith is required. Intentional trust in God is required. And self-discipline is required. I think the Apostle Paul, he really perfectly puts together all this teaching in this classic passage I'll read for you. You'll know it. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, where he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I may not be disqualified. You have to realize that the lust of your own flesh will take you out of this race in a second if you let them, if you let your guard down. So to persevere, to gain approval, you have to run with discipline. Some spiritual sweat is required to endure. You have to control self, deny self with intentional faith, lest you be disqualified. This is our work to do that God has given us to persevere. Have no fear, though. God promises to give us all the strength we need for this work, like we learned in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We're called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But understand that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this being said, though, along these lines, don't make the mistake of confusing gaining approval with gaining salvation. Not what we're talking about here. It's not like we earn this crown of life. That's not how it works. Yes, we must persevere, but our perseverance does not earn for us the crown of life. Rather, it merely attests that we possess it. Perseverance is the ultimate and final evidence of salvation. When you persevere, you get the crown, but you don't get the crown 
because you persevered. You get the crown of life because of God's grace. It's his work that we are benefiting from. We don't earn it. Christ earned it, or earned it rather, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, where he paid for our sins in full, granted us his righteousness by faith. That's, that's the means by which we really receive this crown of life. It is merely by grace. And this is why our salvation is all to his glory. And when we cross the finish line, there's not going to be any boasting. You're not going to do a victory lap. You're not going to get up there on the podium and gloat in front of others or rub your victory in the faces of the lost. No, we don't deserve to be up there. We didn't earn that spot on the podium, so to speak. We crossed by his grace. We persevered by his strength. It's his eternal life. He's letting us have it. And so we will merely just celebrate him and we will worship him there. Praise him. That's all we need to do, not ourselves. There's a perfect picture of this in Revelation chapter 4, where you have the 24 elders pictured standing around the throne of God. These are most likely the representative rulers of Israel and the church, and they're wearing crowns. But then it says they bow down before the one who sits on the throne, and they cast their crowns at his feet. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. These rulers of Israel and the church have a position of honor in the kingdom, but they realize, who are we? We're nothing. We don't don't deserve this. He is worthy of all of this glory and honor. Only God is worthy. This blessing of eternal glory, it's from God. And so we will return to him all the praise. In fact, we're so undeserving of this prize that sometimes you might even, you know, might even feel like, will I really get there? I don't deserve that. I know my sin. I fall so far short. Maybe you start to doubt that you'll, you'll ever really receive the prize, that anyone will really make it. But God is, is so good and gracious. He's gone the distance and he just promised it. He's just promised it by his word, which cannot be altered. And so finally, number three, the promise of blessing, the condition of blessing, the expression of blessing, and lastly, the promise of blessing. Look once more, verse 12 of James 1. He says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Here we see that the outcome of glory, the end of the race or heavenly inheritance, it's been promised. It's been foreseen, foretold, and promised by God himself. You want an eternal perspective, here it is. It's given to you. God has promised the outcome. The day will come where Christ will return. The wicked will be judged and removed. The faithful saved and awarded the crown of life. This is the promise of God's word, and it's meant to encourage us and give us hope and motivate us to endure. We know the outcome. There's gold at the finish line. Just keep going. You know, this hope in God and the joy of the Lord we speak about, it doesn't mean we have to disdain the good things in life that God has given to us. 
like people or property or possessions. These are good temporal blessings, and it's only right that we enjoy them and give thanks for them. That's fine. But as Christians, we derive our ultimate hope and joy in the Lord and our heavenly inheritance. And it's important you get that straight. You get that perspective because the trials in this fallen world will eventually rob you of your people, your property, your possessions in life. And I bet some of you, I know some of you have already experienced that in this fallen world. But if you've placed your hope and your joy in those things, well, here comes depression. You just lost what you've lived for. But if Christ is your joy and the crown of life, that's your hope. Well, nothing down here can rob you of that. Your hope is untouched, your joy unfazed. You haven't lost anything eternally. You see, this is how the person who loses everything like Job can still be counted blessed because eternally nothing's changed. They haven't lost a single thing. In fact, they've only gained. The more you suffer, the greater that eternal glory becomes by comparison. There's not the point Paul made in 2 Corinthians 5 or 4, 17 and 18. You know where he says that momentary light affliction, it's a grand understatement, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, there's, there's that perspective again, that eternal perspective. It's prescribed all throughout Scripture. You must place your hope and your joy in the Lord. Here, you're going to lose people, property, and possessions. But eternally, if you're in Christ, you lose nothing. Your person, that's Christ. Your property, the kingdom of heaven. Your possessions, life eternal. You don't lose any of that. That that doesn't get touched. It's reserved, unfading for you eternally in Christ. Nothing can take these away. This This is blessed. That's the blessed one. But again, this blessing only comes and only applies to those who persevere Or as James says, now at the end of verse 12, to those who love him, to those who love God. Love for the Lord is that chief expression of true faith. We hang on just because we love our master. To whom shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. Or to once again, quote Paul, at the very end of his life, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the award all will experience who love Christ. And my prayer for you this morning is that this is you, that you can say this, both right now in your life, And on your last day, nothing's changed. You you still say, I love the Lord. I'm with him. I follow him. 
You love Christ. You keep the faith. You long for the crown of righteousness. And so you're going you're gonna to finish this race. You will persevere until the end. Unless you fear, though, I want you to be reminded and encouraged that we love because he first loved us. He's not going to let you go if you're in Christ. The call for us to persevere is genuine, but it's always matched by God's preservation. We persevere really because he preserves. He who began a good work in you will finish it in the day of Christ Jesus. And this is God's gift of salvation, right? That's how we speak of it. His gift. He doesn't take it back. He put you in this race by his choosing for his glory. He will, by his goodwill, see that all of his children finish. He's not going to let you fall by the wayside. And the same power that saved you will preserve you. And yes, our part from our perspective is to persevere. We must do this with discipline and endurance as we've seen. We have to press on, fight the fight of the faith. But know and be encouraged that God is he's fighting too in a matter of speaking to ensure that you will cross the line and get the goal. And so the end, it's, it's really simple when you think about it. Life, just, just live for God. Give him the glory and the praise now and on the final day. And even if you're going through trials right now, even if you're out there and you're at the very bottom of the valley of darkness, just look up, see the sky, see the heavens. If you're in Christ by faith, you're still eternally blessed. Nothing has changed. You just need that eternal perspective. So look up and then persevere in the faith, taking joy and hope in your eternal inheritance, knowing God will see you through. And you know what? When you cross the finish line on that day by his grace, you know what everyone says? Everyone says it was worth it. No one gets there and says, I regret the race. Everyone says following Christ was worth it. I'll leave you with Jude 24 and 25, his benediction, where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we we praise you this morning because of this promise, the promise of glory and this eternal inheritance that we know we don't deserve. Lord, we confess our sins and we reflect on our lives. We fall short. We we deserve eternal separation because of our our unrighteousness, our, our filthy rags, Lord. But by your grace, your choosing, your goodness, you have called us to yourself, made us your children, adopted us, given us a kingdom made us brothers of Christ, sons of God, and you will see us through to eternity. These are, these are rich blessings, Lord. This is what it means to be blessed. The things of this world all put together on the scale account for nothing compared to 
the eternal weight of glory that you've promised to those who love Christ. And so I pray that's us this morning, that all here love Christ, have turned to him. If any here is apart from Christ, convict that soul, Lord, and, and show them the futility of what this world has to offer. It's full of trials and tribulations for the believer and the non-believer. But those in Christ have a hope, have a joy, have a destination, and have a crown. And so by, by this, Lord, by these truths, may you encourage our hearts, keep us going, keep us pressing on in the race, even though it's hard and hard times come, but may we look to our Savior and endure, fixing our hope on him, the author and perfecter of, of the faith. All for your glory. We will praise you now. We will praise you then. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.